uh, scripture for the message this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I'm excited to share what God is leading me to share with you today. And so hopefully this will be a rich experience of exploring God's Word regarding uh, this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5. So um, first, let's, let's just go over what my objective for the sermon today is. My objective is that at the end, you will have a deeper understanding and a commitment to lead a life of ambassadorship, which is not just a once in a while thing, but it's a 24-7 role that Christ has called you to do. And also to, to at least be on the start of having some very practical to-dos and takeaways from today. So um, that's my objective. Hopefully, at the end, you can hold me accountable and say, Dave, you didn't get it, or wow, I got it. So hopefully that's what we'll do. So let's pray. Father God, you are the king of the universe. You created all things for your glory. Uh, And you created us to bear your image in this world, again, for your glory. So, Lord, as you called us to be your image bearers, uh, speak to us today as we explore this concept of ambassadorship, Lord, that we would truly understand it and comprehend it and embrace it as our role that you have called us to. Lord Jesus, come now and speak to us through your word. Amen. Well, good. Let's dive into the first verse of the text. Um, In verse 16, it says, so from now on, now just as a footnote, I have been using the New International Version for my whole life, basically. 
and I've memorized a lot of scripture in the NIV, and therefore I couldn't not not preach from the NIV. So uh, I've checked against other versions to make sure uh, the words are are good, and uh, that we're not. I'm not leading you off a rabbit trail based on a different version than you're used to. So at any rate, that just that footnote, I'm going to be reading and preaching from the NIV. So as appropriate, we'll look at some other words, some other versions as well. So, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Well, whenever you see a, a therefore, and in this case, it's kind of hidden a little bit by the word so instead of therefore, you need to ask what the therefore is there for. Um, so let's look back. Uh, usually you can help answer that question by going back in the Scripture a little bit. So let's go back to verse 13 and we'll read the context a little bit leading up to verse 16. If we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So as we look at that context, we see a motive for the therefore. And that motive is Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. Now, as we look at some other definitions of compel, in the King James it says constraineth. Um, the ESV says control. Um, and also the word compel in New King James. So, all those words imply some sort of force involved. There's a force involved in this motive. It's a motive. It's a force. Motivation is, is a force that moves us, right? So, um, just for example, magnets are compelled to join together or compelled to repel each other. So that's an example of compel, what compel really means. So Christ's love compels us to do what we're going to be exploring today. But there's also a reason in this passage. The reason is the reason behind the motive. So as we look at that, we see Christ died for all. I really believe that this is the reason behind the motive. Just like in magnetism, there's actually a scientific explanation for why those two magnets are compelled together, and that's called the force of magnetism. It's a, it's a physical force that draws those two magnets together or repels them if they're north-south. So, Christ died for all is the reason. It's the reason behind the motive. But this begs the question... Who is all? Who is the all in that passage? What do you think? Well, we don't know for sure, right? Because we don't know who are the elect. Um, 
We can't know for sure until they actually are redeemed, right? Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your sin. Now, this is an example of in the Greek, that word you means you all. If we were in the South, you'd say y'all were dead in your sin. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.10 adds some little color to that and it says endure everything for the sake of the elect. This shows there's a subset of the all, which is the elect, right? So let's look at Romans 8.15, especially in the second part of the verse. It says, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So there we see how we kind of know who the elect are. They're going to be ones whose spirit cries out, Abba, Father. They're going to be ones that want to be part with the Father. They want to be in Christ with the Father. So, we don't know who the elect are until after it's evident. Based on that, how do we interact with all people? Are we only supposed to interact with the fellow believers? No, may it never be. And I'm going to go through Scripture and make that case for you. So, not knowing who's elect, we're compelled to treat everyone as possible elect. Again, we're compelled because Christ died for all to treat all as possible elect. So back to verse 16, as we see on on the screen. Regard no one from a worldly point of view. Again, that's making the case. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. So again, we're not supposed to just treat with the elect, but with all. That is what the therefore is there for. Because Christ died for all, we're compelled to, to treat no one from a worldly point of view. Well, what does it mean to treat people from a worldly point of view? Well, Paul gives an example of how not to treat people in that part B of verse 16, where he says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So that's Paul's negative example of how not to treat people from a worldly point of view. Basically, the way the unelect treat Christ and His people as less than human. So how did Paul think of Christ and treat His people? Well, let's refresh our memory a little bit by going back to Acts 7, 8, and 9. In Acts 7, 57, Paul was right there when they stoned Stephen. And young Saul, at the time was his name, guarded their garments during the storm during the stoning. So he very much approved of that action of stoning Stephen. So he regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. Uh, It was intruding on his view of what his religion demanded of. In verse 8-1, Saul is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And in verse 9-2 in Acts, 
He's even going out of his way to persecute Christians by going to Damascus. By the way, I looked up on, I did a Google map search, and it's 202 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem to Damascus, which is quite a trip, actually, in those days. So, Paul was definitely acting out of his own interest and, and, and treating Christ and his disciples from a worldly point of view. If anyone knew how to treat people from a worldly point of view, it was Paul. And I'm sure that's why he put this in, this passage of verse 16. Now, I was asking myself, how would it be like to actually approve a stoning? And it made me think of a movie that highlights what it really means to stone someone. And that's a, it's a movie that was made several years ago called The Stoning of Soraya M. It was, it, it was filmed by an Iranian film producer uh, to highlight what happens when a village decides that another is too other and they're going to kill her for it. Um, it started with her husband. But it, that movie graphically shows what it means to stone someone. And I would recommend it. If you, it was produced by the same people who did um, the movie uh, the, about Christ and His crucifixion as well. The la- was it The Passion of Christ, I think it was? Yeah. So, Jesus shows us a few more examples of how our heart is revealed uh, in negative examples, how our heart is revealed uh, by treating others as other. Uh, In Matthew 5, in 21 through 26, he talks about murder and makes the point that even if you view someone with anger, you're murdering someone. Your heart reveals in anger that you really are viewing them as someone worthy of murder. Adultery in 27 through 30. Uh, And Jesus points out that even lust is a form of adultery. Um, In 31 through 32, divorce. And and the form of that is indifference, saying, I, I don't really care about you anymore. I'm going to divorce you. Um, oaths in 33 through 37, which is really blasphemy. Um, by the way, when I made this slide, I was only thinking of three of these, but, but there are five here in this passage. Uh, and 38 through 42, the eye for an eye is really about vengeance. Again, taking vengeance for yourself. So Jesus himself gave some negative examples of what it means to view people from a worldly point of view. But In verses 43 through 48, Jesus follows on and gives some alternatives to that worldly point of view. This is the positive side of the negative examples. To love our enemies and not just our brothers. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to show a very radical idea what it means to love with others 
than a worldly eyes. That Samaritan was definitely an other. And what did those three people who passed by do? They viewed that Samaritan, that injured man, as an other that didn't mean anything to them. In Kevin's sermon last week, he showed how the younger brother treated his father as an other and just viewed him as a source of inheritance. And he showed how that older brother viewed both the father and the younger brother as an other, as someone not worthy of his love and as a source for things for his own good. Um, So those are some things to glean from that first verse. Let's move on to verse 17. This is a verse that I memorized a long time ago. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is a declaration of new citizenship. We are no longer citizens of this world, but of God's kingdom. In this world, what does it take to immigrate to a new country? It's not easy, is it? It's not meant to be easy. When you immigrate to a new country and become a citizen of that new country, your allegiance is now to that new country. Well, just to show you that by reading the word citizen and a new creation, by saying, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new citizen, Philippians 3.20, Paul gets very explicit when he says, we are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. Well, let's look at what it means to be a U.S. citizen for a minute. The United States Pledge of Allegiance is something that I recited every day in school when I was growing up, and I know it to this day because I recited it every day. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That pledge is a pledge of allegiance to the country I'm a citizen of. And new citizens, when they become citizens of this country, learn that pledge and treat it as very worthy thing to remind themselves why they became a citizen of this country, the liberty for all. Well, when we become citizens of heaven, we now have a pledge to say to the new country that we're citizens of. Some of you may or may not be familiar with this pledge. I remember reciting it to the flag of the Christian of Jesus in vacation Bible schools and things like that. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. That is the pledge that we can say now to Christ who saved us, who died for us and rose again to give us citizenship in heaven, as Paul said in Philippians 3.20. 
So as we look at Romans 8, 15 and 16, that says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And, on an, and we, by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And then in verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So let's read that verse again. Again, we don't need to... This is the symbol of what we get when we become a citizen of the United States of America, a passport that proves our identification as a citizen of the United States. But when we become citizens of heaven, what's our passport there? This passage shows us. Our passport and identity is confirmed by the Holy Spirit who lives in us and through us. Let these words of Scripture sink in and let's, let's, let's just, I'm going to read it again and I'm going to substitute the word citizen in a couple places. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of citizenship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are citizens of heaven. So, is your spirit predominantly a spirit of fear, fear of failure, fear of disappointment, fear of lack of success, fear of disappointing others, lack of security, fearing the future, or does your spirit sing out, Abba, Father, to the God who knows the number of hairs on your head? Abba, Father, you know the hairs on my head. You even know the number of quarks in the atoms in my body. How does this change in awareness occur? How do we become aware that we are citizens of heaven? How can we live that out 24-7? Well, we have to take our eyes off the world that we're temporarily living in, don't we? And remember that we're permanent citizens of God's kingdom. Well, we're going to explore some more how we do that. Hopefully, by the end of this day, you will have some practical ways to take your eyes off the world and remember that we're now citizens of heaven. So let's look at verses 18 and 19 in the text. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So what do we see in these two verses? Well, one, all this is from God. This new citizenship is a gift. It's not something we earn. We don't earn it by deserving it. Some people become citizens through a path called an H-1B visa, where they come to our country because they've got some skill that our country needs and desires. And so we give them a visa and then eventually they become a citizenship. It's a path to citizenship. 
We don't deserve this gift of citizenship in heaven, do we? Because, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no man can boast. Not by works. Not by works, so that no man can boast. So what else do we see in this verse? Well, this ministry of reconciliation has been given to us. God is a God of redemption and reconciliation. God is a God of redemption and reconciliation. God is in the business of redeeming the world to Himself and reconciling the world to Himself. Now, we're created in His image. I prayed that in my opening prayer. If we look back at Genesis 1.26 where it says, God said, let us make man in our image, in our own likeness. We are the image bearers of God. So if we bear His image, we will reflect that image by being like Him, a reconciler. What else do we see in this, these two verses? Not counting men's sins against them. Not counting men's sins against them. If we bear His image, we will reflect that image and also be a reconciler and a redeemer. Well, let's look at the definition of reconcile briefly. In the dictionary, there's, there's three bullets that come out in the dictionary. One means to restore friendly relations between. Another is cause to coexist in harmony, to make or show to be compatible. There's an accounting definition uh, of reconciliation, and that's where one account is reconciled with another one, to make sure that those two accounts match and show the same results. There's a biblical definition of reconciliation, and that's the end of estrangement. That estrangement is caused by original sin. That original sin causes estrangement between God and humanity. So the definition, the biblical definition of reconcile is to end that estrangement between God and man. Let's go back to this not counting men's sins against them for a bit. See if I did that. Nope. Not counting men's sins against them. If we are made in His image, our actions should look like God's. We should reflect God's character in how we behave in this world. And He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. So if we look in the mirror and see a reflection, what would a reflection of God look like? What would a reflection of us look like if we're not counting men's sins against us? Let's think of circumstances that you and I face every day where we might be possibly have an opportunity to reflect God's image. 
or not. Let's say a loved one is grumpy with us. Well, we've got two options. Don't let it bug you. Remember that you and God love that other person. Or you could ignore that grumpiness and bottle it up or even be grumpy back at them, right? Two options. One is reflecting God's character. One is treating them as an other, someone who just is annoying you, impinging on your space. Another example, you're running late, either at work or at home, and a spouse or a coworker, just as you're about to leave, asks you a question. What can you do? Well, one option, you could ignore them. Not being late is more important. And they were just being selfish anyway by asking you that question. They should know that you were running late. Or you can even snap at them in irritation. That will teach them not to read your mind. Or you can take one minute to determine the urgency and then decide which one to postpone, talking to them or being late to that next appointment. Again, those are some examples of how we can respond either treating them as an other or treating them reflecting God's character of grace and mercy. Here's another example. Someone cuts you off in traffic and horns in at the end of a zipper. Well, we can honk in frustration, let them know they were being selfish. Or, here's a way to reflect God's character, pray for them that they will make it to their meeting on time. Whoa! (laughs) That's an idea, isn't it? and actually experience God's providence. Wow, there's an encounter you had, not even face-to-face, where you can be a reconciler. And you won't even know the result until we get to heaven someday. Well, let's look at another passage of Scripture that in my Bible is titled, Imitating Christ's Humility. I really think this title could be, How to Be an Agent of Reconciliation. There's so much in this passage, but let me read it to you. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5 then follows on and says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So again, we're seeing that Reflect the image of God in the way you betreat others. In this passage, it says, consider others, consider others better than yourselves. 
And it even says, look only to your, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't say, forget your own interests. It says, consider their interests as well. Well, good. Let's move on to verse 20. This is my keynote verse from the passage. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, we urge you, we beg you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be an ambassador? Well, I have a little story to tell. Back when I was in the Navy, my submarine made a port visit to the island nation of Barbados. All the officers and the senior enlisted were invited to reception at the embassy that night. We went. It was a pretty amazing reception. I had never been to an, an embassy reception before. Even, even on a small island nation like Barbados, it was a big deal. The next day, the ambassador and a few other dignitaries were invited, the U.S. ambassador, that is, and a few other dignitaries from, our, from Barbados were invited down to our ship to tour the ship. So our, our executive officer spent quite a bit of time researching exactly what the proper protocol was for greeting uh, the ambassador as she, it turns out it was a she, came on board the ship. If you're not aware, when you come on board a naval vessel, honors are given to senior officers and and senior civilians above those officers for um, a lieutenant commander or what's considered a major in the army you get two dings of a bell and you're announced Lieutenant Commander arriving. Or if they actually have a command of a naval vessel, the name of that vessel is given. Um, If you're an 05 or an 06, which is a a Lieutenant Colonel or a Colonel or in in the Navy it's called Commander or Captain, uh, it's announced Commander arriving. Ding, 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 four bells. Or again, if it's a, the, na- the captain of that vessel, instead of arriving, because he's already arrived before, they say, Pasadena, returning. Uh, if it's a commander of another vessel, it'd be Skipjack, arriving. Well, for people above that, like an, a rear admiral or a vice admiral, they get six bells, ding, 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 ding. Rear Admiral, arriving, if you don't know what command he has. Um, But say, for instance, it's the Chief of Naval Operations. Well, he's an 09. He's got four stars on his collar. He gets eight bells. Ding, 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 ding. Naval Operations, arriving. Again, the name of his command. Secretary of the Navy, even above the the CNO. His announcement is eight bells and Navy arriving. Well, guess what it is when the President of the United States comes on board a naval vessel? Again, 
If we still used guns to do gun salutes like they did back in the, the sailing ship days, it would be 21 guns. But in this case, we have eight bells again for the president. Ding, 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 ding. United States arriving. Well, guess what the protocol in OpNavInst 1710.7a, dated 15 June 2001, which is 201 pages long about proper naval protocol, says, about the number of sideboys, the bells, guns, how to announce, all that stuff. Well, the U.S. ambassador to Barbados, a 35-year-old divorcee, a wealthy political appointee, appointee, not a career diplomat, when she came on board our ship, she got the same eight bells as the president and the same announcement. United States arriving. Think about that for a second. Here's a young woman, probably just donated money to get that position, but when she walks on board that naval vessel, she's treated as if she is the president of the United States of America. When she talks and speaks to the dignitaries and the people at that island nation, she speaks with the authority of the President of the United States. She is honor-bound to represent that President in a way that does not embarrass him. I tell this story to really get in your mind what it means to be an ambassador. In this passage, in verse 20, Paul says, we are therefore ambassadors for Christ. We have that same weighty responsibility to, re to represent our King in our circumstances. We are never off stage or on vacation, just like the ambassador is not on vacation. Anywhere that ambassador goes, people know that's the ambassador. The car has flags on it that, that show that's, oh, United States flag on the, on the front bumper of that car. That's the ambassadors on board. We're never off stage. We're never on vacation. Your responsibility as ambassador is to never embarrass your leader by doing or saying something that would contradict them. Wow, that's a weighty responsibility. Well, as we look at this word ambassador in the text, it's the Greek word presbia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. The only other usage in the Bible is in Ephesians 6.20, where Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains. Well, let's, if we look at this example of what it means to ambassador in the world, and that, that has had meaning for a lot of years in history, a lot of centuries, actually. Um, ambassadors were typically giving us, given a seal that they had the responsibility. They could seal things in the name of that king or potentate. Well, let's look back through 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 6.20, just within the context to see if we can get a get some ideas around what it means to be an ambassador. 
otherworldly or alien, in Christ, new creation, old has gone, new has come, gift from God, reconciled to God. Our ministry is reconciliation, not counting men's sins against them, given us the message of reconciliation, God making an appeal through us, imploring, beseeching, begging, entreating, and in Ephesians 6.20, fearlessly opening your mouth, making known the mystery of the gospel, in other words, making it easily understood. Well, let's now look at another passage that kind of gives us a deeper idea what it means to be an ambassador. In 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, this is a passage that I also dearly love, and it makes my next point for me very well. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is almost a hymn. But again, we see that each one should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Faithfully administering or delivering God's grace. So how does God's grace get to the world? Through us. Through us. We are Christ's ambassadors administering and delivering God's grace to the world. One more verse to make this point. Again, one of my favorites. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Paul didn't just pick the two most common things in the world we do, eating and drinking, for a a frivolous reason. These are essential to our well-being. But he says, even in these very common acts that we do every day, we can glorify God. We can worship God. Because what else is glorifying God but worship Reading on in 1 Corinthians 10, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Notice, do not cause anyone to stumble. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Again, that's making the point. This this life we live is not just a, a... a living within our holy huddle of the church. It's to anyone. It's so that they may be saved. And then Paul says in 11 verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So even if you read these two passages in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 6 
as saying Paul is claiming to be the ambassador and it's letting us off the hook? Paul does not let us off the hook there in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He goes, as I imitate Christ, so you imitate me. You are called to be an ambassador. So let's make this a little more poignant. I'm not going to read these passages, but in Matthew 25, there are three parables that Jesus uses to illustrate that we are held responsible for what we do on this earth. And when we go to the judgment seat of Christ, the books will be opened and all that we have done will be revealed. And these parables point out that you want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what I called you to do. You used the talents that I gave you for my glory, to reconcile the world to myself. As it says in 1 Peter, to faithfully deliver God's grace in its various forms by using our gifts our skills, our talents, our time, our treasure, and all our abilities to reconcile the world to God in whatever circumstances you find yourself, at work, at play, with your family, within our church body, or even by yourself in the privacy of of your home. And I should add at school. 13-year-olds are not exempt from this call to be an ambassador. You can be an ambassador for Christ at school, too. All right, so... In your bulletins, in addition to the sermon notes and the questions for discussion, are an extra sheet of paper called a worksheet to define your mission field. Now, some of you are sharing a bulletin. James in the back has some extra of these worksheets if you'd like to do it. I'm going to walk through this worksheet with you all and, and, and do this. So if you'd like an extra worksheet, just raise your hand and James will quick get you one. We're going to walk through this worksheet together. This is a great exercise that really highlights for you and me, what our mission field really is. So, as we look at this worksheet, you'll see there's a number of categories. What I want you to do on this worksheet is add up, we're going to add up the the total at the end, but fill in the numbers for each of these categories. So, number of family members, immediate family members. And then think about And we're going to think about this for a year period of time. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. We're going to think about this for a year-long period of time, just to really make the point. Number of extended family members that you have contact with or could have contact with over the next year. Number of people in our church body. There's not as many here today. I'd say there's probably about 110 to 120 of us here today. But there's about 180 usually affiliated with our, our, our church body. 
Uh, if everybody came and nobody was sick, we'd have about 180 people here. Um, number of neighbors within a half a block or whatever stretch of neighbor that makes sense for you. It doesn't just have to be exactly a half a block. Some of you are on a cul-de-sac, and, and, but this is the number of people that you can or would or possibly could have contact with over the next year. Here's another one, number of followers or friends on social media. Ooh, this could be a big number for some of us, especially if we're into a whole bunch of social media like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook friends. Those are potential people that we will see our testimony and we have an opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ with. Number of coworkers within your sphere of influence and possibly outside if you make an effort. If you're at a company, number of customers. If you work as a store clerk or a bank clerk, number of customers you interact with over the course of a year. I know you're not going to be able to get exact numbers in some of these categories, but make a, make a good estimate. Number of contractors or vendors you deal with, either through your home or through work. Um, number of store clerks in a year. If you go shopping quite a bit, you see a, quite a few number of store clerks, don't you? So if you go twice a year, figure 2 times 52, that's 100, 104 trips. Uh, I might see two store clerks every time, so the numbers add up quickly, don't they? Um, number of people you run into at gas stations. I'm, I make a habit of being cheerful at the gas station with the person at the next pump. And because I've got a sign on the side of my car that identifies with Christ, uh, people sometimes ask me, what's C12? And I get an opportunity to, to be more than just a friendly face and a cheerful face, but actually tell about Christ to someone who is curious. Number of people on the highway. I mentioned earlier the opportunity you have to pray for someone when they cut you off. How many people, when you're commuting, do you have an opportunity to pray for in the cars next to you and pray that they would experience God's providence in some way? If you're a school, number of people, number of schoolmates, number of teachers, number of coworkers that you interact with at school over the course of a year, and on and on and on. I encourage you to use this worksheet as a starting point, not an end point. Now, I don't, have some of you had an opportunity to add up these numbers? If you do, I'd be more than thrilled to hear what your number is. I did this exercise with a client of mine in C12, and he was the president of a small company with 30 employees. His original number when he first did it was 1,526, just through his company. Next year when he did it, it was more about 35,000 or so. Eric, when he first signed up with C12, told me, Dave, when I joined C12, it's because I just wanted biblical business advice, and I just viewed my work as a way to fund 
going to church on the weekend and doing ministry. He goes, I worked during the week so I could do ministry on the weekend. This exercise has shown me I've got a mega church worth of ministry opportunity right at work. You do too. You've got a mega church worth of ministry opportunity all around you every day. So I encourage you, use this exercise, pray through it. When you enter next devotionals, think through each of these categories and think, how could I be ambassador to store clerks that I meet throughout the year? How could I represent Christ well? How could I represent Christ on the highway as I'm commuting? Or on vacation, how can I represent Christ when I'm on vacation? It's a 24-7 calling, folks not something we take a vacation from. So finally, the last verse in this passage is verse 21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This sums it up. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the ambassadors of Christ. We are called to be an ambassador for Christ 24-7. I hope that you walk away from this service today with that high and holy calling on your minds. And you don't forget this six months from now, a year from now. That's my hope and prayer. It's a high and holy calling to be the righteousness of God. This is weighty. It's weighty. It should scare you a little bit, right? But it's what can fuel this. Again, just like I pointed out earlier in the passage, Christ's love compels us in verse 14. Christ's love compels us. Well, in Job 29, Job is an example of someone who thought he was living for God. He could demonstrate by his actions. And and chapter 29 points out all the different ways Job was an ambassador for Christ. But in verse 20, in verse 4, this points out what fueled Job's ambassadorship. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. That's what fuels this ambassadorship, God's intimate friendship. As we spend time with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, That's what fuels us to go be an ambassador the rest of the day. Now, I don't want you to walk away thinking, oh man, this is a big responsibility. I don't know if I can handle it. So that's why I put this last passage up here. Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This role of ambassador is not meant to overwhelm you. Jesus wants to meet you every morning and encourage you and soften your heart so that you see all those other people, those others in the world, not as bumpers in a pinball machine that just you bounce off of and you don't pay attention to. He wants you to see all those bumpers in the pinball machine of life as people that Christ loves, that He cares for, that you can love and care for too. May God bless this message to your benefit. Lord, thank you so much for your call to us to be ambassadors for you. We thank you and praise you that not only have you given us a high and holy calling that's weighty and important, but you promise us that you will be alongside us and make that yoke easy and that burden light so that we find joy in it, Lord. It's a joyful endeavor to be an ambassador. It's not weighty and serious and overwhelming. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us all and enabling us to be your ambassador. In Jesus' name, we give thanks and praise. Amen.